Hey guys, Nate here. We're joined today by Ryan Sandin from Stagecoach Farm and Forge. Ryan makes and sells handmade carbon steel cookware, and it's amazing. I've got one on my stove in there right now. It's all we use. Uh, and last year we made a video. My dad uh, made some of these pans in his shop. You may have seen that. And my dad joins us in this conversation as well. So we've got two experienced blacksmiths, professional who are making a living from blacksmithing today. And if that interests you, you're going to love this. Let's get into it. Ryan, thank you for coming. You guys have both done something that a lot of people would be, maybe jealous is not the perfect word, but a lot of people dream of, which is find a way to make a living doing a hobby craft, making, working with tools, building things that they love and i'm sure you've both um well i know you dad you've been doing that in lots of different ways over mm -hmm. the last 20 mm -hmm. years so mm -hmm. it's not like you cracked the mm -hmm. code mm -hmm. you know in the last year or anything and right. same with you ryan you've been fabricating yeah. and doing welding for quite a while but that's the point i know a lot of people will go to craft fairs they'll sell things on etsy that's certainly a good starting point so um ryan you've maybe people haven't seen you but give them let's have your background career-wise and remind them of, of where they've seen you before on our channel and that kind of thing sure yeah so hey guys name's ryan sandin and uh i run stagecoach farm and forge and i make hand forged heirloom quality cookware and i just got started um three years ago now actually wow it's funny to say that it seems mm -hmm. like just yesterday but i guess it's been three years since i wow. started started this deal mm -hmm. and um my background uh is in welding and fabrication that's mostly what i did uh, in high school i took a welding and fabrication program and loved it and loved it and uh you know, as soon as I graduated, I got a job TIG welding and just worked at every kind of welding job you could imagine mm -hmm. over the years. Uh, ended up working for the Sheet Metal Workers Union, doing uh, high-end TIG fab. And um, and I also started my own business um, doing hand railing and doing mm -hmm. fabrication and installing hand railings in Denver. And uh, that was my first um, attempt at uh, a business mm -hmm. self-employment self-employment and huh. <clears throat> it went okay but it was always uh, kind of a struggle to get past that first initial step of um, like moving out of my home shop and hiring employees and mm -hmm. kind of making it to the next level to be able to purchase bigger equipment um, before I got there uh, right when things were going good the 2008 market collapse thing happened mm -hmm. and, and that kind of took out all my clients and stuff and, and so I, I went back to work and mm -hmm. started working for the sheet metal workers union after that and got a good welding job. So, um, yeah, so my background is in welding and fabrication and, um, this, um, when I first moved here to Oregon six years ago, um, I started just doing all kinds of random side jobs, whatever I could do to get work. Um, built a couple tiny houses, built a couple tiny houses. I built some, uh, sheds for some people, like kind of unique artsy mm -hmm. sheds uh, mm -hmm. for this gal who's uh, going to do like a uh, chocolate um, business where she's making handmade chocolate. Um, and so uh, I've, I've pretty much just been a hands-on builder 
you know, DIY, teach, yeah. teach myself how to keep, build things. Keeping, by, the, keeping the wolf off the doorstep with your hands. Yeah, you know, um, mostly learning by trial and error and uh, from your guys' YouTube videos and stuff, you know, Skillsaw Pro Tips and right. stuff like that. <laughs> so, you know, if there's, if there's anything you ever need to learn, you can always just look it up on the internet, and yeah. that's great. So both of you are, blacksmithing will come up a lot because that's mm-hmm. what this has been for you guys, but woodworking and leatherworking and all a lot of these principles apply to different trades outside of just blacksmithing but yeah um dad that in some ways you, you had a similar uh well talk about your transition you were contracting and building and then you got your blacksmith tools so how did you well i, I hold on let me finish with ryan first of all um you build pans now and that's right. where people have seen you and that's yeah. what you've been doing for how many years now uh three years yeah, okay. you forge pans, years. I should say. Right. You are. Yeah, all uh, pans and utensils. So I, I pretty much focus on cookware related yeah. stuff. So yeah, that's been my, that's that's been uh, my niche and and uh, what's allowed me to I think to actually have a viable business mm-hmm. is is by really honing in and focusing on a specific product. There you go. Yeah, that was an exceptional um, path into blacksmithing to say I want a blacksmith. I have to have something that's viable and sustainable as a blacksmith. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I'm going to make utensils and pans and kitchen <laughs> stuff in order to function as a full-time blacksmith. Yeah. That's not usually the way that we do this, no. right? Yeah, because you started kind right. of at, as a fabricator, fully qualified, as a blacksmith, yeah. almost zero. Zero. So I want to do this. Not almost, zero. Okay. Like, yeah. Yeah, and so since wow. I want to do this... yeah. I found a niche I'm going to use to, I'm going yeah. to exploit the niche because yeah. it looks viable and I'm going to learn to be a blacksmith yes. inside this niche. Yes. That's a very non-typical right. route. Yeah. yeah. But I knew from, you know, doing the hand railing and, and everything else, everything made. else that I've made and done mm-hmm. that I really need to be able to focus in. And, um, you know, part of that is you also have to be willing to, uh, gamble mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. And that's really what it was for me. Um, and it was sort of out of desperation because I didn't have any other way to make an income right then. I had just finished building a house for a client friend of mine. And um, when the COVID lockdown thing started, all the work went away. And there I was like, yeah. okay. And yeah. I just... And, and Southern Oregon is Appalachia of the West. There's just not a lot of work around No, there. there's not a lot there's of work. Just not compared right. to Denver and other big right. urban metropolitan areas exactly. where, where there's money, you know here and there yeah the options were very limited and mm-hmm. so i was really having to think outside of the box and get creative and to do some gambling to mm-hmm. make it work you yeah. know so and you were aware that the internet was going to be your springboard to a market yes yeah i knew that um the local market here wouldn't be able to um sustain my blacksmithing work mm-hmm. um i knew it was sort of a pipe dream to mm-hmm. think about going back into making hand railings and doing custom projects um and I was really wanted to get away from custom projects just because each uh, project is like having to relearn everything from scratch and yep. redesign everything and, and the quoting and the bidding, you know, 80% of the quotes and bids that I did would take up all this time and they would uh, equal to nothing. You know, I yeah. even had big contractors come to me and just use me to yep. give them numbers, numbers. and yep. they're like thanks for the numbers we'll never see you yeah. <laughs> again yeah um so yeah so focusing in on the cookware um i i knew that that was my only shot to make it work yeah, yeah. <clears throat> your you you did a much different um thing and it was a different time it, the internet was different then but yeah. when you wanted to interject blacksmithing into your income stream yeah you you had a a different um 
yeah. I don't know, result. How did that work for you? So I had, I had, uh, uh, I'll get the math wrong, but I had 30 years as a carpenter, builder, fabricator, welder, yep. concrete guy, and <clears throat> and um, probably 12 or 14 years as a general contractor here in mm-hmm. Oregon. And then the blacksmithing tools dropped into my lap, and then I met Cy Swan, and it's just like Nate said, I thought, okay, I'm going to interject, I'm going to add blacksmithing as a, another revenue stream to mm-hmm. what I'm, to the things that I'm already building for people. Right. And so my, my only um, idea about blacksmithing viability was architectural ironwork yeah. going with additions and remodels and, right. and that sort of thing. Yep. And everything that you just said about custom work is 100% yeah. true. Every piece of architectural ironwork is yeah. its own whole, it's a Pandora's box. Right. Every project is a Pandora's right. box and you crack it open when you start to bid it. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. everything jumps out of there. Yeah. And if you're lucky, if you're really lucky at the end of the day, you install it and it fits and they pay you and the check clears the bank and yeah. they will let other people come in to look at it so you can use them as a reference. Right. But you don't make a shop rate. Right. Mm. You just yeah. don't make There's a shop rate. There's so much that you do that you can't charge for yeah, all those right. trips back and forth to smooze with the clients and talk about their project and yeah. um, all the measurements and the jigs you got to build ahead of time that's to get right. the, get it to fit yeah. right. And it's just, but boy, it's fun. It is fun it's, though. It actually, yeah. it's, it's worse than fun. It's compelling. It is. Yeah. 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 It, it gets to where it's all you think about and it's right. all you want to do. And oh yeah. It, it becomes its own addiction, right? Oh yeah. That install portion is should be mentioned as like uh-huh. a major uh-huh. difference because mm-hmm. separate from making it as a contractor, of course you were going to install it, yeah. which yeah. probably added like a, a, another level to the challenge and complexity versus just handing it off and being like, I'm Abs- done. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's part of the brilliance of cookware. Right. You put it in a box and the USPS yes. takes it and it's yes. gone. And done. Uh, because in installation you're interfacing with modifying a structure yep. or at least putting holes in a highly finished surface mm-hmm. and the inevitable mistakes and scratches, you have mm-hmm. to be qualified to fix them and make yep. them go away. And, uh, it's there's no tricky. way to, and, and if you try to put some money in your bid to cover your butt on the way out for the damage you yep. did, you don't mm-hmm. get the job. Right. And so it's, and so I'll just say this. And if Cy was here, I'd say it too. So, I love Cy Swan. He has absolutely changed. He's best. He's the best. Yeah. But you want to talk about stress, bring Cy Swan into the house on an install with oh, you. Oh, yeah. Bring Cy in carrying one end of something. And, uh, whoops, I forgot to wash my hands, and everything I touch, I leave the marks, and I'll put a hole right. No, don't wait, wait, Cy. You know, he's so driven to do something. Yeah. And so it was like, it was an adventure, an adventure taking Cy in on an install. Yeah. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. Yeah. At all, yeah. you know, but uh, so anyhow, the architectural ironwork is a thing you would do if you could. But yeah. man, if you don't live in an area where there's lots of people who understand, who, who value handwork, yeah, with lots of with lots of numerals after the first comma, mm-hmm. if they're not ready mm-hmm. to spend, pick a number between right. eight and fifty thousand dollars, right you know, probably you ought to do something else. Yeah, it's a tricky business to get into. And I think it really requires a pretty high-end market. And yeah. like the numbers that I would bid, that I would think are high, that I probably bid on some of these jobs in Denver, I bet the contractor, the interior designer, whoever got the bid from me would look at it and be like, yeah. th- that's a quarter of what that's we right. expected. That's and right. so he's mm-hmm. not qualified. That's, that's exactly you know? right. And so it's like, we might think that, 
$1,500 for this handrail is yeah. a lot of money. No. no. These other guys are charging like $300, $400 per lineal foot huh. of handrail. Okay. And let, that's even low, yeah. you know? It's let, let's like, talk about that for a second. There's a guy <laughs> named Dave Thompson yeah. up in Eugene. You would enjoy knowing Dave. He's yeah. got a huge art, um, art sense and a, a, a blacksmithing skill set to go with it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he, he took, when I, 15 years ago, when Cy and I were first starting this, we went by there and saw a sample of this really ornate and artistically perfect railing that he was installing at the coast. And he happened to mention $1,500 lineal foot. Mm-hmm. I thought, wow. $1,500. $1,500, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I was blown away <laughs> until I took a job and I put $500 lineal foot on it and lost, 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 right. lost. Right. And hmm. I was at a Northwest Blacksmith Association conference yeah. and I saw a video. I can't think of the guy's name it'll come to me but he had this slideshow and he had a, a non-disclosure clause in a railing yeah. that he put in somebody's house couldn't tell who it was for yeah how much it cost or where it was at big dollars in the seattle right. area right? right and uh but he did say and it was bronze and iron and gold leaf wow. and fifteen thousand dollars per lineal foot wow it just went up and yeah. up and up and everywhere it were yeah. hundreds of feet right at 15k per foot oh yeah so your point is so good. What yeah. what you charge for architectural iron work or anything else has no bearing it's, on what you think no, it's worth. No. Yeah. No. And there's somebody out there who's willing to pay, you know, $1500 or $15,000 per square foot for the right work, you right. know. Yeah. I yeah. think when I was doing my handrail business like 15 years ago, mm-hmm. um, I was doing real basic Mm-hmm. Like uh, a lot of horizontal round bar that yeah, yeah. looked like cable railing, yeah, sort of, because yeah. the cable railing was usually outside of my typical client's price range. And yeah. I was working with average homeowners, I would call them, not yeah. not rich people. Um, <sighs> and I think I was charging about hundred and thirty dollars per lineal right. foot for this hand railing, and I was right. I was bringing in about two grand per job. Right. And then I would. I would like subtract all the expenses after that. And I'd be like, Whoa, I got Whoops. like 500 bucks after all <laughs> yeah. that. And I'm like, Woohoo. Yeah. <laughs> was, yeah. yeah. So that's why I didn't make it long in that. Yeah, and business. at the same time I was installing cable railing systems for yeah. 130 bucks a foot right. and wondering why I wasn't making right. money. Yeah. But you we can, were having fun. You can yeah. get a little closer. It wouldn't okay. hurt. Yeah. Um, great. So these, uh, dad, I remember you saying several times, but that it would bore you to make a product over and over. Like, yeah. let's say cookware. Do you still feel that way? Or yeah. now with benefit of hindsight, do you feel like that might've made more sense or? Um, so I, I've long known that even in construction, mm-hmm. if I would have specialized, if I would have locked onto one thing and yeah. drilled deep, the, the likelihood of making money goes up, Right. you know, um, economy of scale and the value yeah. of repetition and you yeah. only learn thing one, things once yeah. and perhaps more importantly you can train a crew to do it right yeah. but so i i've known for a long time that it was a hard way to make a living inventing yeah. a wheel all the time right but on the other hand i think i would have gone crazier yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's i think it helped me to do all these random custom projects all over the place and to mm-hmm. learn how hard that was yes. um, for me to appreciate the simplicity of learning a, a the process and the steps to create yep. one item yep. over and over and over. Yep. Um, there is a happy medium, of course, like, and that's kind of what I do as a solo worker in my shop now is I'm finding out like how many pans can I wire wheel before I'm sick of it. Mm-hmm. And before yeah. it's just, you know, can't do another can't one. Do it. 
Um, and so I, I find out how to break up the work yep. because there's a lot of, I have quite a few products that I manufacture yep. now in small quantities. And it's a growing list. And it's a growing list and I, um, I can break it up and so mm-hmm. I can work on this, you know, wire wheeling for a while and then I can go to like my fun stuff, forging. Yep. I love mm-hmm. forging stuff. That's the, that's the funnest part of it all. And, uh, and then we have the web work and we got all the social media stuff. And so there's no shortage of work to be done that's like all over the place variety and so i just i i break it up with variety by yep. doing like i'll have a goal i'll do like okay i'm gonna wire wheel 10 pans and press them out and then i'm gonna forge 20 handles today wow. and uh, mm-hmm. boom i'll do that mm-hmm. and that breaks it up to where it's not too monotonous and then i can yeah. come back the next day and do the same thing mm-hmm. and it's fine and i actually that's smart i actually really find um pleasure in not having to think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Like now I can just put my, like I got these nice like uh, 3M earphones and I can put a podcast mm-hmm. on and learn something while I'm working and I don't really have to think about it. I'm just like, you can't do that while you're making a railing. Right. You yeah. can't do that yeah. while you're making a railing. Uh-uh. Um, and there's just a comfort in that. And then whenever I'm like, you know, my little girl comes running in the shop, like daddy, daddy, look what I drew you a picture. And, and I'm like, Oh, you know, this is, this is why I do this. Like yeah, it's mm-hmm. cause I'm here at home. Yeah. And really that was my goal with this business was I didn't care what I was doing. Um, I mean, I could have been selling, you know, uh, anything really is if I was working from home, that would have been a win for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And so to be able to not only work from home, but to be, an artist and to yeah. be creating something that I truly love to create and that I can stand behind. It's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. dream come really true. And good. when yeah. you are, let's say running the business the way you are, even if there are parts like wire wheeling that would get boring or are monotonous, um, building the business and running the social media and mm-hmm. being in charge, you're, you're building other things besides yeah. pans. You're building this whole brand, you're oh, yeah. building customer service. And that, I think that that compensates for some of the, menial labor um i look forward in, in to a way that doesn't if you were just on somebody's payroll right wire brushing wheels totally. you're still building something yes besides the wire wheel mm-hmm. pan you're building stagecoach yeah. yeah. um at the same time it's a lot of mental work it's a lot of decisions um yeah. you know i mean i'm not only a blacksmith but i create social media i've learned uh marketing skills i've had to learn like you know how to balance the books and Mm -hmm. how to build a website and i mean the the list of how to be a photographer and and so on and so forth and so like the list of things that i've had to learn how to do Mm -hmm. to run this business are are really extensive so i really look forward to uh breaks from all the mental decision making and just to be like wire wheel a pan that sounds easy like and i can listen to music and just not worry about it so yeah it's like for me like mowing a lot of times right. i'll be like i'll tell Allie like well i guess i'm gonna go mow don't yeah. know what else to do and right. she's like because it's, it's so nice to get out there and relax yeah. and just like okay i'm gonna like keep my hands busy and meanwhile my head can just like yeah turn while yeah. i'm kind of just on autopilot oh yeah yeah I definitely, I get the most flustered in between jobs when I'm having to make decisions on like, okay, I got to spend a bunch of money, get materials and I got to figure out where to market next and to put money into either Facebook or Instagram or, you know, you got all these decisions of all these like different rabbit holes you could go down that might turn into something or might not. And that to me is the most stressful thing is like having to make the decision on like where your last little bit of money that you have left over Mm -hmm. from the last job, where to put it to make more money, you know? And it's, it's, uh. That's daunting always. So what are your tips? Unless you got anything on that to finish that, any comment there? Um, 
But j- just the one thing about pricing mm-hmm. and and the trap of pricing things in terms of what right. we would be willing to pay. Yeah. Yeah. It, there's there's a corollary trap that um, the value of something has nothing to do with how long it takes you to make it. Right. And Daryl Nelson, um, I think that's a Francis Whitaker quote. He he yeah. was he was a big dog blacksmith at the Renaissance of blacksmithing in the 1950s, 60s. But then Daryl Nelson would say, and that knife cuts both ways because mm-hmm. people mm. just sometimes you may spend three days making something beautiful and no one sees the beauty enough to pay you for it. Right. And on the other hand, you may make something in three hours that you think is worth three hours of shop time, but mm-hmm. the rest of the world thinks it's worth a week's wages. Right. You yeah. know, and so that's art, that whole trick mm-hmm. about you have to push aside how long it takes you to make something yeah. sort of. Yeah. And when you price it, but right. on the other hand, stop thinking about it in terms of what would I write? What check would I write if I walked into the store to buy this? That's also an irrelevant number. Right. Yeah. And then the last thing, and you touched on it, and maybe this is redundant. There is a client out there that cannot, in fact, you you, you said this pretty much mm-hmm. in the context of when you would give a bill to a designer or an architect and they would disqualify you because it was too low. It's too low. There yeah. are individual clients who can't buy your work right. unless the price is high enough that they can brag about it to their friends. Right. Well, that's one of the satisfactions yeah. that we get is either subtly or overtly letting yeah. people know what something cost us. Right. And, and there is... There's a lot of people out there that oh, yeah. have to spend enough money or they can't say anything about oh, yeah. where they got it and how much it costs. Mm. Oh, yeah. And they're the clients we need, right? At least for architectural ironwork. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember when I was in Denver, uh, I went and bid this handrail project that I got a cold call on. And I drive up to this place and it was up in the foothills in, in uh, the Rocky Mountains and right outside of Denver. And, uh, it was right on the side of this mountain, new construction. They had just blasted this road through like solid rock mountain. And it was just like the most amazing entryway to get down there. And I get down there and I mean, it was the coolest house I'd ever seen. It literally looked like a mid-century castle. It was all stonework and these huge pillars and just Mm. tasteful, just so tasteful and so cool. And just all this old beam work and, uh, all, um, masonry and just, it was, it was amazing. Um, and it was way over my head, like, and it was sure. way, this is, this was like the, for the most qualified blacksmith yeah, in yeah, the area yeah, that yeah. should have been bidding this. And here I am like, driving up you there. know, driving up there, like, okay, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and I could tell right away, like they wanted, um, wine cellar doors for their uh-huh. wine cellar. Um, and also for their c- cigar humidor room. Uh-huh. Um, and then there was something like almost 400 lineal feet of, railing on their like stone mason deck that looked out over the oh. mountain that looked down on denver down oh. there and <laughs> you know i did my best to like shoot for the moon with the sure. bid but of course i never heard back from them but sure. i always think back on that job and i'm like wow i bet i just so <laughs> underbid that and you know but it's it's fun to think about and imagine like somebody built that somebody yep. got that job and yep. did it and yeah it wasn't me. <laughs> and there are there are blacksmiths who are so accomplished at that. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah. Th- there's there's several of them in the, in the Seattle area, and I I will always be profoundly impressed by a guy named Steve Lopes. L O P E S. I think you pronounce I've heard it his name. Lopes. Yeah. Man, his art sense, <clears throat> and he had had at least five or six qualified guys working in his shop, and they would crank out material. And Bob Bergman back in Postville. Wisconsin and they're every Tom Joyce is the big dog has yeah. been for a long time and those guys walk in and they take a job like that and when they're done you think there's museum quality work now 
all mm-hmm. over the inside of this house. What's yeah. that worth? What's that worth? It's right. worth a lot. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. Um, blacksmithing is fortunate and probably some other crafts as well, where it, it will last forever, like yeah. your cookware and you right. can sell that, <clears throat> excuse me. And there, you can put a price on that because oh, yeah. That's right. your product, right. it, let's say it costs a thousand dollars for a pan. Yep. It doesn't, it, it could, yep. um, it will last 10 lifetimes. Right. And so that is part of what people are buying. Kind of yeah. like buying a gift. Like if yeah. I buy something for my wife or for someone I care about, um, it's like that the value of that relationship is kind of wrapped up in the price I pay for this gift. And that's yes. another reason why people, why, why trying to calibrate how much is this worth based on right. my time is It's the lifetime of the product. That's We call it heirloom quality because to us, an heirloom quality item is something that is made to last generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is a piece of functional art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's what our cookware is. And, you know, most people don't fret about the price at all. They get it. We don't even have to explain it to them. But there's a lot of people who are like, oh, my God, it's $230 for a pan. (laughs) And so, you know, every once in a while you have to explain to people that like, but this this pan is going to last for many generations. And so what's the true cost of it then? And it's this beautiful piece of art that you get to like use in your kitchen with your family it's something that you handle every single day yeah we're cooking and there's just it's it's kind of priceless really your kids and grandkids will fight like cats and dogs over it when right, you die right yeah, yeah exactly i think i i have little kids and we have we had two now we have one of your pants because mom has the other one but yeah. the pan that, that you made dad in a shop and i was thinking the other day the kids are doing more cooking themselves now and that's mm-hmm. the pan we use for everything and it was occurring to me, like when I die, that pan is going to still be in the kitchen right. till when when Allie and I are done. Yeah, and those kids will remember. I guarantee it oh, yeah. because you put that yeah. handle in your hand, like oh, yeah. you, you don't forget that. Yeah. So they're going to come home at like thirty five and find that pan and be like, oh, yep, there's yep. the old pan. And the day I die or Allie dies if she outlives me, one of those kids is going to I sneak in the middle of the night and just like snatch <laughs> oh, it up. Yeah. And so and I, then the value of that and thing then goes the value? up because yeah, then, then it's sentimental exactly. value and it's just it's it's it's. It, there is no value. Leo, yeah, Leo's priceless. already had me put his initials on the back. Oh, yeah. oh nice. <laughs> yeah, good call. Probably I need to just, in fact, maybe I will just buy three more and put them away. Yeah. So that when the time comes, I could say like, actually, it was always four pans. Like that movie. What's that movie? <laughs> Prestige where yeah. I was trip, I was switching it out. You guys didn't know, but there's actually four of them. So you can all have one. But the point is you can't price that heirloom aspect or the gift aspect if somebody's important to you and you give them something meaningful yes like then maybe it's worth you know right that much more just to you know because that person means that much more yeah but here's another thing that your window uh, when you started this was perfect because mm-hmm. there was no way to make a living with heirloom quality pants in douglas county before the internet right couldn't do it couldn't no do one it. ever had yeah no one ever would yeah. yeah and so it's just one of those things in life where yeah. timing is everything it's everything right? yeah. yeah and because you can sell those to the world right to the whole world right. therefore it's a niche yeah and without that therefore it's a hobby yeah and i knew in my mind when i was thinking like how do i utilize my 20 plus years of metalworking experience mm-hmm. and put it into something meaningful meaningful that i really want to do um and like i had just gotten an anvil mm-hmm. and i was thinking about starting blacksmithing as a hobby just for fun because I'm a metal worker and I want to learn blacksmithing. And it's like the one thing in metalworking that I hadn't jumped into. Mm -hmm. And to me at that moment in time, it was a total pipe dream to think about creating a business around (laughs) that anvil. And, um, 
but you know, having enough time sitting on the couch with no work, like, what, what am I going to do? do? Gonna you know, do? like the yeah. anvil became more and more important in working from home. And uh, so yeah. I, I knew I needed to create a product that was small enough that I could put in a box and I could ship it and I could utilize the internet as my market to sell anywhere in the world. Yeah. And, um, and so my first idea was to create barn door hardware because I had already built a few. Sure. And so that was just on the top of my mind. I, some people in the local community had hired me to build some barn doors mm -hmm. and some rolling track hardware, mm -hmm. which uh, was just fabricated. But mm -hmm. of course I grinded and, and, you know, made it look like it had been, sure. Sure. Uh, forged, sure. you know, because I like the look of the sure. forged stuff. And you got an art sense. And, and you, I got you an had art to sense. do something. Yeah. So I created this barn door hardware and I got a good system for it that I felt like I could repeat. And so that was like my first idea. But I always, every time I would really kind of try to jump into that as an idea, these red flags would come up. Uh -huh. like, oh, it's it's too big. It's too specialized. The market's too small. There's too it's, trending. It's, it's, it's too trending. There's like homeowners. And then you look on Amazon for yeah. barn door hardware and it's they like, ooh, it. there's like yeah. a plethora of options. They're all from China and they're like anywhere from 50 to, you know, you could spend 250 bucks and get some pretty nice, yeah. like barn door sure. hardware that looks pretty cool and it's sure. going to work fine. And so I, I realized that was a pipe dream to try to do that. And then uh, I was on the internet searching around on Instagram and I saw this company called Blue Skillet mm -hmm. and they were my first, you know, aha moment of, these guys are creating these pans and it's a small company. They're in Seattle, I think. And it's, it's, uh, it's just a, a husband and wife operation. They work the business together and they make like, uh, I don't know, I want to say 600 pans or something a year. And then they sell them all at once in this big flash sale at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And they had gotten a write up in, um, uh, cooks illustrated magazine. Uh -huh. And that was the one little media jump that they needed to just totally blow up because mm -hmm. cooks illustrated is big time. It's all the foodies. And so the name went out. The name went out. They were instantly over their heads, but, mm -hmm. but I really like their business model that they had zero interest in like growing into a big company, um, and mass manufacturing. So they, they, they just kept it small and they've been doing it for quite some time. I don't, I don't want to say how long, but it's, I think they've been doing it for more than five years already and so they they're like some of the original um carbon steel pan makers that are that are doing this and and so i just thought i'm like okay well th these guys are selling out all of their goods um in a matter of you know one day like literally a few hours all their work they've done th through the whole year sells out in like a couple hours that's right and i'm like <gasps> so there's a market for that and that's when the light bulb went off in my head and i was like i could figure out how to make these pans and <laughs> and i'll of course i'll do it my own way and sure. and put my own artistic twist on it and it's you know it's not it's not reinventing the wheel it's just a carbon steel frying pan which sure. is the original way that they were made before cast iron mm -hmm. you know is uh blacksmith you would go to you'd go to your chuck wagon and the the guy would know the blacksmith and he would make the pots and pans and so you know so we're just going back to that uh, old world craftsmanship and so let me let me say this you are a quick study Right. Yeah, you're a quick study. You've got hand skill. You know how tools work. Yeah, you know you've got an artistic sense, and you can visualize a sequence of events. Yeah, a lot of guys just can't right. visualize a reasonable sequence. You know, in, in producing things like that. Yeah. And so, so it. I I just want to. You know, you've come 
as far as you need to be in oh, three years. Thank you. Way faster than almost anyone else that I can think well, of. Well, I'm obsessed and I'm yeah. and I'm <laughs> and determined. Helps. And um, you know, my my social life is uh, not that great. I mean, I just work all the time and people come to me, you know, and takes. so it's um, but all in all, I mean, I have zero to complain about. Like my life is better now than it's ever been. I'm in the yeah. place that I want to be. Yeah. Uh, I am, you know, you're, I don't ever see myself getting rich or making a ton of money off of this, but it's, it's sustaining me and that's enough. And that's a success for me know. is that it's the people just clicked away when you said that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that's important to say though. Um, yeah. Because I think that for the people who are listening to this, they they want to be building it. That's what they want to do. That's like that's the right. Meaning, the meaning to them is in building and making things. And so yeah, there you go. Those yeah, are, this, my focus is not the money. It's the quality of life for me, and that's what it comes down to. Um, money comes and goes. It's not the most important thing in the world by any means. I don't really care to even. Of course, I need money to to live and survive in this day and age. But for me, it's about quality of life. I would rather make a lot less money and be at home with my kids and to enjoy what I'm doing throughout my day and to feel good about it. Like yeah. to feel like I'm doing something good for the world and for the planet too. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're big on sustainability and keeping our business as green as possible. You know, we really work extra hard and spend extra money not to use like plastic packing materials and stuff like that. And so mm-hmm. anything we can do to support, um, the, the green movement we try to do. And so it just feels good, you know? And so it feels good. And, and so it's just, so it's what, a, what it's are a some win-win of your tips for the people who they will probably have a different idea or product or trade. Yeah. But let's give some tips, um, with this as like the table being set, you know, Definitely. charge properly. Yeah. Careful if you're taking on a contracting work along with the Yep. Thing you're making, but what, what are the tips for people who want to do more of this that you, I guess, both have learned about turning your hobby into a business? Yeah, I have, um, some good tips that I think are universal for a lot of different makers who are making some, some sort of artwork or some kind of item that they're, that is crafty. Um, and they're trying to market it and sell it on their own and not jump into like major manufacturing or anything like that. Um, but the first thing being, uh, you know, to have a, a sellable product, right. That like is, um, you know, that people are going to want to buy and something that's useful, you know? Um, and so for, for me, that's why I did the, the pans because I get to mix these two worlds of function and artwork, you know? And so form and function, form and function. It's, it's a happy marriage between the two. You know, I've, I've never been one to just make pure art, which I, always I'm kind of envious of people who do, but everything always has to have like a multifunction stacking functions for me, you know, and blur the line between art and craft, right? You know, craft has, has a, a, a big aspect of practicality yeah. and doggone it. We all need a little practicality, right? You know, so right. art, art meets craft, craft meets art. Yep. And that, so that's one tip. Let that's one tip. On hold, yeah. Hold, go hold ahead. Your thought. So a lot of people are so in love with what they're doing. They just assume everyone else will be in love with it too. Right. Okay. That's a trap. That's that's and, not and true. And if you're not objective enough to be able to to see that clearly enough that you can understand, like you said, whether yeah. or not there's a market, then you have to find somebody who can tell you. Right. And you have to decide if you're going to be willing to listen to them or not. Yep. Because we probably all can think of people who have started businesses, I mean, retail businesses or service businesses or right. separate from the making business, and you think, wait, 
nobody's going to pay to do that. Right. And six months later, yep, nobody would pay to do that, and yeah. those doors are closed. Yes. You know? yeah. And so just because we love to, I don't know, fill in the blank, doesn't mean that it's a viable business. Exactly. And that that's a really good point, you know, is that uh, you got to think from the other person's perspective from your consumer's perspective not just you That's and right. and that goes for pricing and for uh the product usability itself That's it's right. like the characteristics of the product and all yeah of it. what what does the market want you know and um so you know that's that's a wide range but once you've got a product that you think is viable that people are going to want um that's like the least most important thing as a maker is like you got to have a good product without that it's not going to happen right mm -hmm. that people are going to want to buy um and then secondly i would say is that you have to be willing to wear many hats you cannot especially when you're getting started you can't afford to hire a web designer and to hire a, an accountant and a bookkeeper and to hire all these people that most normal businesses have to help them move forward well, you're going to have to figure out how to do that on your own. Um, luckily, with technology now, we got all these apps and things that like, you know, the DIY um, person with with a little bit of like, uh, you, you know, know how around how to work their phone and how to how to work with uh, um, with technology can figure out how to like use, you know, the basic like QuickBooks apps and stuff like that. But um but you're going to have to learn how to wear many hats. And I would say Inclu including the ones that are not fun, including the ones that are not fun. Yeah. So you got to You got to be willing to do everything and to put in the work and you got to be willing to, um, to pay for it yourself out of your own pocket and to, to really put, put in the work to build a viable business, you know, which is like all the boring stuff. You got to, form an LLC and, and do it the right way and like start a bank account and get your EIN number and all that like boring business stuff is very important at the end of the day. Like you can't really get by without that. You can't go open a business bank account without first having an EIN number and an LLC to back it up, you know? Um, and if you don't do that, you're just kind of screwing yourself later on down you're the playing. road. You're playing. You're playing and it's going to come back and bite you and it's going to be really hard to fix later on. And so, that's one of my recommendations is like start out um, with the base being like create your base, foundation. your foundation um, legitimately, like start an LLC, um, get a bank account that's separate from your personal bank account. So you can actually keep track of your expenses, um, which leads to the third thing is to figure out how to charge enough for your product. Cause I would say that's, out of all the makers that I have as friends and that I see, that is the number one thing that we all struggle with is the value of your item, how to um, calculate how much your item is worth and how much you need to charge. Because there's a lot of hidden costs that go into it. It's not just time and material. There's overhead that is that you get to divide in, and, and add that into the cost of your product, like all the downtime and all the um, you know, fees for having your website yeah. and for the, you know, the accountant and the bookkeeper and the things that come in sporadically throughout the year. Like you got to be able to add all that up and make sure that at the end of the day that your sales, um, after you've paid your expenses are going to cover it and to yeah. still give you a paycheck. And, and it's, yeah. you know, <laughs> over these last six months, it's gotten really hard to keep up with it. Cause it's just, you know, with inflation, everything's just shot through the moon, oh, but you got to also respond 
and you got to adjust your prices constantly to to reflect the current um economy and things like that so it's um so building that like proper foundation for your business is super super important um having a the the right product that people actually want to buy is really important and then figuring out your actual cost of business and what you need to charge is really important and so 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 all of this let me step in there um part of that foundation is being honest with yourself about what your overhead is mm-hmm. and reducing your overhead before you start your business. Yes. Because your cash flow is going to be way less than you think it's going to be. Right. But if your expenses are already something that you almost can't manage, you're dead before you start. Yes. And so if you decide you're going to go into business, the first thing you got to do is throw everything overboard that can go. Yep. That's not moving the boat forward. Agreed. Get rid of it. Yep. And then when you get your first check or two or three or ten, don't yep. use those for a down payment on a new truck. Right. Don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I watched you, if I remember, at one point, once you realized that this might be viable... You sold some stuff mm-hmm. to invest in the tools that you needed to make your output more consistent right. and, and uh, increase the output. You didn't do that first. No. I thought, huh, yeah. smart. Yeah. You know, find out if there's a niche, yep. liquidate some stuff that I don't have to live, that right. I don't have to have to live yep. in order to increase my output. My, my analog to that was when I fell in love with blacksmithing and started mm-hmm. trying to kind of tie that into my general contracting it provided a way for me to buy, justify buying more tools, which I had right. put off for a long time because I couldn't justify it. Yeah. But with the income stream of the blacksmithing, it, it made sense. Yeah. Yeah, there's like that chicken and egg. This is just the conversation about tools, but as contractors, tradesmen, it's so easy and fun to buy tools because you want them anyways. Yeah. And then you can justify it so easy because, well, it's going to help my business, so it's a business right. expense. And, da, 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 da. and man, it's so easy to go nuts down that road. Oh, it's yeah. also easy... To hold back too hard yep. and just torture yourself yep. when a tool can like add. I'm on three the hours I'm on the day. flip side of the having yep. gone nuts with it and <laughs> probably gotten too much and like spent way more money than I needed to on certain tools, especially trying to set up a state of the art blacksmith shop with zero experience as an actual blacksmith and like buying a hydraulic press mm-hmm. and like having to reinvent this uh, way of forming these pans that didn't exist before and I'm making it up. So it was, it was a lot of gambling and there's definitely a lot of money that I wasted on, on tools that I could have saved if I would have had the knowledge that I have now. Yeah. Yeah. But we bought, we pay for our education. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. The education has to be purchased. Yeah. And you trial and error. Yeah. Well, everybody (laughs) has to answer this for themselves. Like what tools and when, yeah. And what, what is that wise balance that's going to allow you to like increase your productivity? Yeah. Conserve your cash and therefore, uh, cash flow and longevity as Mm -hmm. you get. And there is no like magic bullet answer. Everybody's got to answer themselves. We, I, we are always answering, I, asking this question in regards to cameras and equipment in that way and investing in websites and just, just things that cost money. They're like, yeah, we could do that. Would it be worth it? Right. I don't know. And so yeah. you gotta, everybody's got to square up to that and, yeah. and tool up appropriately and wisely. Exactly. Good thing about old tools. That's actually one of the real cool things about blacksmithing yeah. is you're buying old tools buying junk. that mm-hmm. are valuable and will be valuable when you're done with them. You can kind of get your money back. That's really nice. As they might even to, appreciate over yeah, time yeah, and probably, yeah. be worth more. That's right. And yeah, fact, probably will. In fact, it probably certainly have. Yeah. I mean, your tools have probably not gone down no not not one of them no no yeah like my little giant power hammer yeah 100 pounder i could probably i think i i did 
I paid a lot of money for it. I paid $8,500 for it, but I'm pretty sure I could sell it for 12 today yeah. to the right person. Yeah. See, I, I, I'm about to experience the first real example of that not working in that Atlas Copco compressor that I run my power hammer with. Yeah. But that's not a blacksmith tool. Right. That's a towable compressor. Oh, yeah. Did you know they emailed a couple months ago? Did yeah, you see that? I corresponded with him just a little oh. bit. But, and his niche in Atlas Copco is a little different. Oh. But I'm, I'm probably going to circle back. Oh, what were you going to say? Did, is that compressor dying or what? It is dying. Oh. It, it's, it's pushing oil out. Oh. You know, and yeah. so there's rings in there, maybe a broken ring or something. Yeah. But I'll just keep pouring oil in and compressing that air, and I'm not going to be back in the blacksmith shop for six months much right anyway, engines so. are kind of a different they animal yeah than anything they, with, compared an, an an anvil it's kind of like that, that's, that's yeah like, this is not a blacksmith tool this is right. a towable compressor yeah there's yeah. a lot of compressors on the market so it's it's uh supply and demand i would say i bet you'll be fine though because let's say you rebuild that whole engine for four thousand bucks yeah. i mean it's still a screw compressor on a trailer yeah it's i mean true. price what a new one costs yeah it's, it's probably still like mm -hmm. i bet yeah. i bet you'll be okay it's more I, like I, a, mean, I gave two thousand bucks for it see mm -hmm. i've certainly got my money there out of go. that i just don't know if i want to get involved i yeah. talked to a mechanic about rebuilding it and oh. atlas copcos are great machines but they're not it's not like rebuilding a ford or a chevy oh you know it's, it's like their own it. motor or something yeah and yeah it's well it's a Deutsch dutz diesel it's a great little motor mm -hmm. but the I don't know. We'll, yeah. we'll, do the, we'll do the calculation and see. Oh, man. That would have been cool if that guy who emailed was in the right department. Yeah, <laughs> he he, he's not. But he said he would. <laughs> anyhow, maybe. Yeah. The, yeah. So yeah. I, have, I have the last and most important tip that I think will help other makers. Um, and it's more important than all those, than the product that you sell, having a solid foundation, um, learning to wear all the hats. Well, the thing that's even more important than that is that if you don't have a market to sell to, none of that matters. You have nothing. You have no, you have no business, right? Mm -hmm. And so learning how to be a marketer and who wants to buy your product and how to show them that your product is available and that they want it, that is the key. to, And that is the only reason I've been able to, to do what I do. Um, and so luckily in this day and age, like you had mentioned, um, we, we got the internet now and we have social media, like you guys are YouTubers and you've made a name for yourself on YouTube and, um, you, you see how powerful of a tool that is. Well, there's a lot of different options out there now that you can market from. Mm -hmm. Um, I have like pretty much strictly focused in on Instagram as my main social media outlet for creating content and for finding customers and for getting my customers to my website to sign up for my email list because that's the ultimate goal is to get the customers out of the big wide world straight to your email list so that you can market directly to them yeah. and these are the people that are most likely to buy your product because they care about you and they've signed up with your email list. And so when you send them an email saying there's a shop update and you got this available, they're highly likely to buy it if you, if you can pitch it to them the right way. Um, so getting comfortable with uh, producing content like you guys do has been the, the only thing that's allowed me to create a business in such a short period of time. Um, I base like obsessively every day 
um, constantly filming my stories on Instagram. And the stories, for those of you who are listening that don't know, are just these um, 15 second video clips that you can put up on your Instagram feed. And um, a lot of people just, you know, it started out, people just put a picture up there and uh, companies will put a picture with like a 15% off sale and it's kind of like sales pitchy stuff. Well, I hadn't seen a lot of people doing it, but my story, when I think stories, I'm like a story is more like there's a beginning, there's an end, there's a mm-hmm. plot to it. And so I wanted to make a story that was like a look into my day-to-day life and what I'm doing and um, to give people something to watch that was more of an actual story. And so I would just do these stories updates all the time every day. And I started, it just started to build and like, you could see how many people view the stories, you know, and it started out with like five people watching it on average, like throughout the day. And now I'm up to almost 600 people. will see like almost every single story that I put up there, Wow. you know, and some of the people that watch my stories are like diehard dedicated. You see them, they're watching it as soon as I post it, mm-hmm. every single one of them. And, and, um, I would say the vast friends, they have become, they have become my friends and I've made true legitimate connections on there with really cool people who I've now met in real life and done projects with. And so it's a great way to make real connections. Um, I've sold a ton of cookware to people and made customers through that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's all through Instagram mostly. And we, we've gotten to this point with Instagram where we're like, okay, we've, we've, uh, tapped out our market on Instagram and, you know, we can only reach so many people. And so we need to go with, you know, Facebook and now, and we need to get on TikTok, and we're going to do all this stuff. And so we, we've tried doing that. And, um, that's when it gets really confusing and hard to manage is when you're trying to like Instagram alone is a full-time job. For my partner, Jesse and I, we both work at it full time together. She's in the office and she does content and filming and I'm doing content and filming in in the shop and we're putting all that together. And uh, that's just Instagram and just the Instagram. So you add in Facebook and luckily you can click on the little button that's like upload to Facebook as well. And so it just regurgitates your content into Facebook. Well, I found when you do that, let's not say recurring. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm kidding you, man. I'm kidding you. Um, the the feedback you get from the regurgitated content is really low, yeah. and it's the same thing. Like if you do a TikTok video and it has the little watermark, I've actually confirmed this now because I've, I've I'm always reading tips on how to get the best performance out of your Instagram. Well, if you have a watermark on your Instagram post they automatically like flag yeah. it and it's like, whoop, they're not yeah. going to show it to anybody because yeah. it's watermarked. Yep. And so they know it's regurgitated content. Oh, and so they're not going to push it as their like main thing. So it TikTok could be great, but just focus on that. That's, that's my tip of the day is like, if you're going to choose TikTok, stick with TikTok, just go for that. There's like a bajillion people on there. You don't need that many people. Yeah. Um, we're trying to pitch to a small market. I'm talking a hundred thousand people, which, which is a lot of people, mm-hmm. but there's like billions of people on, or maybe millions at least on, on TikTok alone. Mm-hmm. And so you got Instagram, same thing. Facebook is even bigger than all of them. Um, but Facebook in general has like an older clientele. It's, it's more old school and you got more like your mom and dad are on Instagram or on Facebook, you know? Um, so We've chose Instagram just because we like that. It's worked for us. Um, But I think it it would be smart to choose one of those platforms to promote your 
product on and just to stick to it and go really hard at it. We, we try to upload, um, I've kind of fell off of it in the recently cause I got my kids here in the summer always gets yeah. crazy busy, but we try to post at least one post every day and I do the stories all day. Wow. Like I'm doing like, you know, sometimes 40 or 50 of those 15 second clips in my stories. Wow. And it's, and now I've gotten my stories down to where you guys have seen the Instagram reels where there are these like mm -hmm. short video clips and they're really high energy, high action and music and stuff. Well, now my stories are like this never ending Instagram reel. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting these really creative shots where I like carry my little tripod with me everywhere I go in my shop and on the farm. And I just film whatever I can do. And I, and I kind of like Torjborn Amon. He's got this style of like blacksmithing. And then he always has a little break in the middle where he'll walk nature. you around the farm and give you a little nature, a little break from banging on things. I like that. I'm also, you know, uh, we have a farm and we love being in nature and we're always out in the garden and stuff. So it's like half and half. It's like all farming and like, you know, me feeding my pig and stuff like that. And then it's back to the blacksmith shop, you know? And, um, so I try to break it up and I get a little bit of content for, I get a lot of like homesteader. We have a lot of homesteaders and back to the lander type people that follow us too. Cause that's what we're doing. And they're in foodies into cookware and stuff. And so I don't want to bore them with just constant blacksmithing, Yeah. but, um, I would say eight, probably 70 to 80% of my like hardcore story followers are other makers and blacksmiths mm -hmm. and they're not even my customers these these people are not buying things from me they're just watching what i'm doing trying to learn and picking emulate stuff up. picking stuff up you know and so and and it's great and i i am uh, an open book when people ask me for tips and things i don't mind sharing it all because i don't really have anything to hide um if you're willing to put in the energy and effort that i have to make something work good on you you got just as much of an opportunity as as i do and you can do it yeah. but you got to be crazy and obsessed like me <laughs> and willing to gamble and to come up with a good product and i know from experience that it is not easy and not everyone yeah. will be able to make it <laughs> if you just want to pan your best bet is to just buy one don't try yeah to, don't try to like make tool up and make your own right you think you think that pan's expensive wait yeah. until you buy a wait until you yeah and press and exactly do all the 10 failed ones before you get it well that's amazing. Um, Ryan, thanks so much. You've done a great job. Yeah. I'm going to um, put a few more points out here also because we've certainly learned a lot from doing this. And, and uh, you've really done a good job at, at putting this all together in, in this day and age. You know, even 10 years ago, you would have gone to like art festivals and been yeah. trying to sell pans. Yeah. I don't think I'd recommend that for people. Don't. The internet is the, it's the sharpest tool in the stack. So use that yes. if this is what you're going to do. Don't, don't, although I say that, and actually maybe I'll end on this, this, um, you saw the Tormek knife sharpener over right. here. This is a little different, but the guy who, um, uh, what's his name? Stieg, who is, who sent us this. Mm -hmm. He said he knows a guy who goes to art festivals, sharpening knives, who makes a killing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's certainly what, possible. But, but he said, and I was thinking, oh, that's kind of similar. You know, you're going oh, around, yeah. but he said, and I, I was blown away. I can't remember the number, but it was like thousands of dollars a day. Yeah. Sharpening knives. I was yeah. like, oh geez, I need to. People make yeah, tons of money at country fair and all these, yeah. all these places. But like you said, it's, I think personally, I haven't had to do that even once. I have not sold a single pan to hardly anybody local, maybe a few, yeah. few pans to local people, but, um, none at any, I haven't even gone to any shows or anything. I haven't had to, and I don't really want to. It sounds like yeah. a lot more work and a lot more blah, blah, blah than yeah. not, not enough um, yeah, greenbacks to cover it, you know? So, <laughs> you got somebody showing up out there. Uh, yeah, I have a septic. 
pumping happening. I, they, I think they'll call when they get here. But we're going to wrap up. I'm going to go watch the septic tank get pumped. I probably won't film that, you guys. I'll spare you the uh, the close-up on the septic thanks, pumping. Nate. But uh, no stories on that one. But thanks for joining us, Ryan. And um, yeah. we'll link to Stagecoach Instagram. Thanks for having me. And you got a website. And we'll link to the video because you made six pans, Dad, in his shop. That was a lot of fun. We got to do another one. Yeah. Yeah. And the pans are, I, I, I'm, we are huge fans. I sent one to, um, Allie's sister's family. He's really into cooking. He, he loves it. We're just, we're fans. I, I love having the pan. So if you don't have one yet, get one. And nice. like I said, you got an heirloom in the making. So, all right. Thanks everybody. We will catch you next time. See ya. See ya.